This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. You know, if someone's agreed to be your mentor, you've just gotten a gift. Mm. You know, you need to treat the gift with respect. And and that person doesn't need to be tracking you down. You know, right. you need to be setting up the meetings. And right. there's good literature that shows that when the mentee drives the relationship, those are the best relationships. And so I, I think even telling a mentor, just because you agree doesn't mean you've made a lifetime commitment to somebody. And if they're not responsive, then, mm-hmm. you know, it may be a time to say, look, you know, let's review expectations. I don't have time in life to be tracking you down, exactly. you know, and bugging you about deadlines and those sort of things. That's not the world we live in anymore, if it ever was. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. David A. Rogers from the University of Alabama. Dr. Rogers, will you tell us all your titles? I know you have a lot of them. Yeah, so I'm the Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs and Professional Development. And in the last year, I was also named the UAB Medicine Chief Wellness Officer. That's quite a lot of hats. Let's back this train up and uh, tell everybody your personal story. How did you, first of all, transition into the faculty affairs uh, role? So I um, am a pediatric general surgeon, and so I did the requisite decade of postgraduate training to get to do that. And I had started in my first full-time faculty position in 1994, and I fully intended to practice surgery and also to have a lab. Um, I don't know why I thought that. I had done some clinical and translational research. I had never really done much bench uh, research, and so it's pretty naive as I look back in retrospect, but I just thought that's what academic surgeons did. And so I had some startup money, and I worked with a really brilliant um, physician scientist for a couple of years, and I realized that I, while I love taking care of patients, I just didn't love that kind of research. And so I, about my third year on the faculty, said, well, you know, what is it that I do love? And what I felt that I really loved was taking care of patients with teaching. I felt like I had been uh, extravagantly well-trained to be a clinical surgeon, but that I didn't know anything at all about teaching. And so... I began taking some courses um, in surgical education, which firmly convinced me that I didn't know anything about teaching. And uh, during that time, had became the clerkship director. When my department chair approached me and it said, it seems like that the students hate you the least of all of us. How would you like to be the clerkship director? And I said, well, that sounds like a great thing to do. And uh, so went on and got a master's degree in health professions education and began doing educational research. And as part of that, began to do some faculty development, uh, which I really enjoyed. And so, you know, I've had a consistent interest in teaching. I firmly believe that education is a way that we can transform, you know, most reliably transform people and groups of people. And as I've gotten older, of course, as an old clerkship director, the students then became my faculty. It feels more and more comfortable. And so that was my original position here was the senior associate dean of faculty development and uh because I have just really enjoyed uh, doing faculty development. I do it, have been doing it nationally for many years, 
principally with surgeons who find themselves in their first educational role and are self-aware enough to know that that they need you know to get some expertise in how to manage their programs. Mm-hmm. And then how did this uh, chief wellness officer role sneak up on you? Yeah, so that's I came here expecting to do faculty development and um, I do a co-director of a thing called the Healthcare Leadership Academy, which I really enjoy, and that's around my conviction that we do a poor job of preparing people for a leadership role in academics. We typically take people that are good at research, are good at patient care, and then we elevate them into leadership roles um, and then without any preparation. And so I did that for the first year, but I struggled because I found that at least here, the faculty were so busy that there really wasn't much interest in doing workshops and things that I had traditionally done. Mm. Uh, during that time, my predecessor in the role was Kathy Nelson, who had uh, restricted her focus primarily to faculty development, but I began getting uh, people coming to me saying, hey, we need somebody who's a faculty member to be involved in our promotion and tenure process and then the grievance process. And um, so I said, okay, well, you know, I'm not sure I would have <laughs> ever been attracted to those roles, but I could certainly see that rationally it was helpful to have a faculty member involved in those sort of faculty activities. So in the first two years, the I sort of balanced my activity. And as I mentioned, I don't know that, you know, if they had come to me and said, hey, your job is going to be to create processes and policies for for faculty that I ever would have <laughs> taken that job. But I, I came to understand the value of it, that that it's creating those processes is a way to help people. It's a very kind of abstract way to help them. But you know, I began to see that the faculty affairs role and the faculty development role could be uh, connected. Um, and so as long as I could do professional development, you know, I said, okay, I'll balance it. The The wellness portfolio came about because I was involved in the faculty engagement survey and we began to see people expressing higher and higher degrees of distress uh, related to their faculty experience and the stress related to their jobs and encumbrances. And so um, I really began sort of focusing around this issue of faculty stress in about 2014. And then in the last year, we had the good fortune that a malpractice insurance company called ProAssurance wanted to endow a chair. So that really served as a catalyst um, to, I think, bring even more visibility to the problem of burnout among all of our faculty, including physicians and researchers. Um, so I, you know, and I feel like that this is something that has been interesting. I've, you know, been advocating for the chief wellness officer role, but I think proper credit should be given to some of our colleagues in the group on faculty affairs who, who have been trying to raise alarm around the faculty experience for a couple of decades. I mean, the recent work done on faculty vitality is, to me, just another way to say, you know, this is kind of where we want our faculty to be. So whether you call it engagement or or vitality, um, I think we're talking about the same things. And so I really hope to work myself out of the chief wellness officer role because I really feel like that 
my aspiration is that all of our leaders would just be more enlightened about the impact that our um, programs and policies and and really senior leadership decisions have on faculty. And so a lot of the models that um, relate to how people's work can burn them out, I think we need to, all of our leaders, whether they're the CEOs or the CEOs or the deans or the chief financial officer, some sort of awareness of these models um, would uh, be really helpful. And then I don't know that we need yet another sort of administrator running around. Um, and I've taken the approach of trying to be collaborative with all my counterparts um, while I do have the individual title, and I try to use it to affect change. Um, again, this is really a, a problem that the GFA has been pointing to for a long time. Uh, and so I wanted to keep it combined with my role because, you know, I didn't, to me, I felt like that was a natural, you know, connection. So when you first started in the, as a senior associate dean, I mean, was that your entree right as senior associate dean? Uh, what was your percent effort? Well, how did that evolve? Or are you, you know, has your, yes. con- yeah. It's a great question. So I was in uh, at SIU where I had gone to do educational scholarship and programming and had a great time there, but my clinical situation uh, collapsed and I'm married to a, an incredibly brilliant uh, physician scientist who has an exercise intervention in women with breast cancer. And she, um, so when my situation became untenable, we decided to go out and look for jobs. And so I always before my job had been the principal job because I was full-time and, and Laura had become part-time when my sons were young and, and she had gradually expanded her effort back. So we said in this job, <laughs> she can be the leading, you know, the target, as they say, and I'll be the trailing spouse. Um, and so I came here trying to be flexible about what I might do. And uh, But as I said, I, we were really excited that she had a great job with a cancer center and with wonderful collaborators at a much larger uh, institution. Um, and then the faculty development, again, is something that I had really loved. So we felt extremely fortunate to be at in a senior faculty role uh, to be um, able to come in. Now, the first few months I was here, you know, with the senior associate dean title, I used to say, well, do you know why I got I'm the senior associate dean, and people would say no, and I say because there isn't any junior associate dean. And so, Kathy Nelson was really the first person in my role, and even having someone who's really focused around faculty was uh, is a fairly new thing at UEB. The, between the two of us, there's only been someone probably for 12 or 13 years, and prior to that, most of the faculty activities were managed by the administrative group within the dean's office. So we didn't really have a model of having people, you know, faculty-level individuals that were involved in in sort of faculty activities. Um, so, you know, that's been good, but it's also been challenging. I do occasionally get, you know, envious of some of the places that have really large teams, um, although I'm aware some of them, like me, are you know part time and they're doing other things as well. Which I, and I think there's some there's some really good positive outcomes when we're all out and about and doing the work that faculty are doing and don't become too you know sequestered. So I continue to practice you know half time. What I did give up when I came here was my research. I 
you know, had the great opportunity at SIU to have wonderful uh, collaborators in educational research, and I just decided that, you know, to take on these other administrative responsibilities that I wouldn't be able to be as that involved uh, in research. Mm-hmm. So your 50% effort in your faculty affairs, faculty development, chief wellness officer role combined? That's correct. That's okay. correct. Got it. Now, can you describe for us what that faculty affairs, professional development uh, office looks like in terms of number, who does what, how many people are there? You know, all of our offices are so different, and I think people are always curious as to how big or small these offices yeah. are. How many people, how many folks you have? So we have uh, three uh, people. We have uh, one uh, gentleman, David Chaplin, who was the chairman of the Department of Microbiology, and he is a scientist, and so he uh, is an associate dean of faculty development, uh, and he primarily works in our CCTS and helps with the development of both physician scientists and uh, the research scientists, and he for example, has a program on mentoring uh, that we offer and does a variety of other activities. And then Sandy Frazier is a, she's actually a physician with an addiction training who many years ago had lobbied uh, for the development of a group of an office called the Professional Development Office. And it, she does a variety of activities. Um, she does a lot of one-on-one counseling and, um, is just revered around here for that role. And she's full-time in that role, so she's given up her practice. And David, I don't think, does any research. So both of them are pretty much full-time in their roles. Um, They kind of loosely report to me as more of a coordinating uh, activity. um, And But that's our office. We have some staff support to run our awards program. We have a Dean's Excellence Awards, and we try to provide some facilitation for some of the national awards. Uh, so we have a staff person that helps with that. Mm-hmm. And what is the promotion and tenure? Did you, where, where does that sit? Who does that stuff? Yeah, so I do that. And um, we have our group here is called the Faculty Council. It serves, it's kind of a combination of what I've seen at some other institutions. So we don't have a school of level, school of medicine level faculty senate. We uh, we have a university level senate. This group serves as the representatives from the various uh, regional campuses and departments within the school, um, but also their main function is to serve as the appointment, promotion, and tenure group. And so I'm a big believer that the that group of faculty should be the uh, holders of the standards. Um, and then I provide administrative support along with uh, part of our HR group in terms of managing the process and, and giving advice. Um, but I don't. Occasionally we have an appeals process. So if a, you know, if a portfolio comes up and is declined, then people can appeal and occasionally it goes to the dean. I get more involved, you know, if it gets to that level. But mostly I tell the dean that I don't believe he should interfere with a decision made by the council unless there's new information or some compelling reason. I think we have to really be respectful that the faculty are the best group to hold those standards. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we see the chairs for really good reasons, 
you know, kind of try to push the limits of some of the definitions. They're trying to retain talented faculty or recruit people. And so many of them are completely supportive of the standards, but with others, I think they see it as a strategic resource. And so the the council doesn't have that inherent conflict of interest. They can just say these are the standards and you know, so it's, uh, but it's an interesting world to live in. Yeah. How many faculty do you have in Alabama? So we have about 1,600 in the School of Medicine. The great majority, about 1,100, are physicians or physician scientists. Uh, and then we have a fairly large group of full time research scientists. Of course, nobody's, you know, getting to do one thing anymore. So most right. of our researchers also teach. Um, so. Can you um, share a little in wisdom and inspire us? Tell us something you do that you're uniquely excited about or anything innovative or unique or different. Um, you know, what's going on up in your head? You're thinking you're doing now, you want to do in the future. Yeah, so at my, you know, at my stage of the game and what I, you know, once you reach what I call the terminal <laughs> faculty status of being a full professor and tenured, then to me, you have the luxury of beginning to kind of think about, you know, what do you want to, what do you want your life to be about? And what has always excited me is helping younger people. The advantage of getting older is, of course, that population grows and grows. Um, but I think it's what one of the things that's attracted me to pediatric surgery is one of the things that still brings me joy training fellows and residents. Um, and now, you know, it's about helping uh, young faculty and young uh, leaders. The thing that I'm most passionate about is the leadership development part because um, as I sit in my role, you know, I see what the capacity of leaders does to the follower groups. And we... Every year, you know, when we do faculty engagement surveys, we can see groups that are flourishing because they have really outstanding leaders, and we have some department chairs that are really outstanding. We have several that no matter what I think I'm doing that's really novel, they're already ahead of me in uh, pushing out. And, uh, you know, we definitely see an impact of faculty when a chair retires and they have an interim and they get very anxious about who's coming. And so... Um, I still think that academic medicine, you know, needs to do some soul searching about how we prepare people. I think the military model is one that we should look at where my understanding in the military is, is that when you're in the leadership role, they're concurrently trying to help you be successful in your role, but they're also talking about what is your next role and how can we get ready for you to be successful in that role, you know, as you're in the current role. And I don't think we do that nearly as well as we should in academic medicine. So that's the thing where I have the biggest compassion, you know, biggest passion is helping what I call the emerging leaders, people that are right on that, you know, they've either just been put in a role or they're even contemplating being put in a role. And I, that's why I really enjoy my work. And we do it with the School of Business, but I just see that these people get really excited about what are fairly fundamental concepts uh, in leadership. Now, we have a leadership development officer, and she does a bunch of things. She's been primarily focused on the chairs, and obviously they're critically important. But but that's a thing that I would encourage anyone who's not doing. If you really want to help the faculty, there's a couple of things I think that pretty you can do pretty consistently. But one is helping their leaders be as capable as possible to me is, is a way to really – 
help the broader faculty in a very effective way. The other area where I've really focused and had mixed success as with just about everything I've done, but is around the topic of mentorship. And when I came here, I was pretty intimidated with the prospects of how do I help 1,600 faculty scattered at fortices and all different types. And I really think promoting mentorship is the one thing that we can consistently do. Uh, we do find that at least at UAB, the chair will have a fair amount of autonomy. And so they're really important. I hear that in some institutions, chairs feel like they're mid-level managers and don't have much autonomy. That's not the case here. So the chairs may be particularly important at UAB, but when the chairs have gotten excited about mentorship and facilitated it and recognized that we've seen the faculty satisfaction with mentorship go up and concurrently we see their overall engagement go up. And to me, the literature is pretty compelling that mentorship is the one thing that you can do. And really, it's just, in, you know, I realize the challenge that the faculty everywhere are so busy, they get kind of grumpy uh, when you go to them and say, hey, what about taking mentors? And so I've been advocating for mentor teams for a lot of reasons, but one is that it spreads it out, you know, so that you can have a senior mentor that's playing the sponsor role um, that can just connect you to things that you need help getting connected to, whereas a peer mentor can answer, you know, questions when you're starting on the faculty that you may think are silly and you don't really want to ask your chair, you know, like, what's this tenure thing about? You know, things that become pretty common when you're in the faculty, but are pretty mysterious when starting, uh, at least they were to me. You know, the whole thing of uh, even some of the policies we have that I struggle with, like we still have the policy that only tenured faculty can on the award of tenure. Mm. And I always say, reflecting from my own personal experience, you know, I was not allocated an additional set of knowledge when I became tenured. Why Why is it we have those kind of rules? Mm. Um, and so some of it sounds like, you know, medieval aristocracy sort of stuff. Um, even the rule you can only vote on a promotion to your level, you know, or below. And it's like that sometimes just being kind of from a blue collar family, this seems all a little bit silly. Nonetheless, the rules are the rules. And, you know, we have to do a good job preparing our faculty to be successful. And so I just find that, you know, mentorship, I can get people to at least participating in it a little bit because most people, you don't have to have them reflect very long and they realize that they all had mentors and had they not had those people, the trajectory of their career would have been quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way, and, you know, it's not as robust in the literature, but a lot of what Sandy Frazier does in our professional development officer is when, when mentorship goes bad, it can be pretty awful. Um, and I think sometimes even in our faculty affairs group, we don't, you know, we aren't authentic about this relationship requires some minding too. Uh, and we need to have a process for when people get into dysfunctional relationships that they can, you know, have an avenue to get some assistance. Cause particularly with the really junior faculty and some of the postdocs, when they get into dysfunctional relationships, they can be pretty distressing. So, but operationally, can you explain to us how these mentor teams are assembled and monitored and how they evolve? Can you help us understand that better? 
Yeah, so what I have done is a faculty development tool. When I came here and I would have workshops and people were very encouraging that I should be doing it and then no one would appear, um, I changed my strategy. And the strategy that I took was that uh, was adopted from uh, Khan's Academy, the Saul Khan, who was the originator of this Khan's Academy, which has aspiration to produce, to provide a high-quality education to the world for free, which made any of my daily problems seem pretty insignificant. <laughs> but I heard him speak, actually, at the AAMC meeting, and he has a really cool story. In fact, he has a book I would recommend for people to read about kind of how he developed his model, but it was based around YouTube, and so doing 10-minute little narrated uh, presentations is what I've done. And so... For example, for promotion and tenure, I created a lot of little short presentations that I would just narrate in my office and then put online for people to see. Um, and so it talks about our process and preparing your portfolio. And it's, I've gotten a lot of good, you know, feedback and it's something I can direct people to. Mm-hmm. For mentorship, I did the same thing. And, and the, so I had reviewed the available literature and this idea of the team was everybody should have a team of at least three people. And there's different language around this concept. So this is not something I created. Some people call it a leadership uh, or a mentorship constellation and other fancier words. But what I did is to take the traditional idea of mentorship and deconstruct it. And I said, okay, mentors, you know, they connect you to important things. They provide you practical advice, particularly in the research community. Uh, And then they can talk to you about you know, silly things that are things that you might perceive as silly. So the model that I am um, advocating is that your team would have a senior mentor that would you might meet with twice a year and talk about, hey, is my career tra- tracking in a general the dr- direction? And hey, by the way, I need to get in this prestigious society of which you're a member. How do I do that? Can you make connections? A peer mentor that you can just talk to about everyday things, um, and then a a um, like methodologic mentor, and that's better described for research faculty. Like, you know, what's your progression in the NIH? You know, when do I get my K award? When do I need to yeah. apply for my R level? Those kind of things. It's less well described for the physicians, and I would encourage people, though, to think about that, that particularly in your first five years of practice, you know, how do I navigate through this? What happens the first time I get, you know, a notice of malpractice? I mean, so we still need those people. It's just a little less well-developed. The major disadvantages of the model is you might get differing advice, and so particularly for young faculty, you have to say you're probably going to get differing advice. The reasons that I advocate this model is, number one, it's less time-consuming for the mentors. Uh, you know, this can be coffee twice a year, um, but also it um, solves the problem. If you There's some interesting uh, discourse in the uh, academic women uh, women's literature about this that there's a disconnect for um, younger academic uh, women faculty and more senior academic women faculty because kind of the landscape has changed. I mean, and it, we we have had success in terms of the number of women, and but when young women will go to more senior women and sometimes ask them about how am I going to manage, you know, having children and that sort of thing they don't find that the advice they get is very helpful because the senior women, 
many times that were the first of their gender, you know, in a group, um, had to do things differently. And so I think it's really important to get a diverse group of perspectives around these kind of issues uh, and just recognize that kind of the landscape is rapidly changing. Um, I know when my wife went part-time, when our second son was born, she was told principally by her senior uh, mentors who were women, you know, you're committing career suicide. You'll mm-hmm. never be taken seriously if you do this. And now that was, you know, a generation ago, but I think you're still going to find that attitude expressed and maybe there's value to it. Um, but I just think as we're getting much more diverse amount around most of the features that we think about, that it's really important to get multiple perspectives. Right. Um, and I think how, yeah. you know, people identify has become quite diverse. Uh, and so, you know, we just, it, it takes a team. It's going to be rare for you to find a single person that you say, hey, that's what I want to be, and I'm just going to attach myself to them, which is, to me, the old model, right. you know, of mentorship. So whose responsibility is it to assemble this team? Yeah, it's a great thing. So in our unit, it's mostly uh, the chairs. We were asking them in the departmental reviews to uh, tell us, you know, what, we gave them the information. This is your average satisfaction with mentorship. What are you doing? Um, you know, do you have a plan? So they're, they're held accountable, um, uh, at the departmental level. So I try to put all these resources centrally, uh, and then we try to let them have latitude because our departments are quite diverse in terms of size, scope, mission, and, uh, but we do ask the chairs to be responsible, you know, for at least the general satisfaction. Yeah. So. yeah. And is there uh, an annual review process where the faculty are invited to give some feedback on their satisfaction with this mentoring? There, there, there is. So, you know, we, like everywhere else, you know, kill our faculty with surveys. So there, <laughs> we have the, the, the president and the university does a, a campus engagement survey, and then the Senate does a, a survey. They alternate between the president and deans and the chairs, and then UAB Medicine also does it. So we've, we were doing it annually, but it just became ridiculous uh, in terms of the amount of kind of duplicated efforts. So we've actually gone to every other year uh, to just do our ones focused on um, the School of Medicine. But, you know, it's not to say there are questions. I just did our campus engagement and I found that there, which, you know, is more is a vendor that deals more with general universities, but there were several questions in there about work-life integration. And so clearly, you know, this is, I think we'll derive information even from that uh, survey that can help us. But. How have you thought about um, the mentoring side? So you ha- sounds like you've got a nice infrastructure built from the bottom up from the mentee's perspective. And I'm right. curious about from the mentor's perspective. And I'll tell you at Hopkins, it's not terribly uncommon that I'll run across a senior faculty member who will express some amount of frustration with all the new faculty and fellows and trainees being recruited. And then there's a small cadre of really good mentors that all those mentees are beating down their door to get to them. And this is another one of those, 
uncompensated efforts. And yes, they're in academia and they love it and they have a heart for helping develop future leaders. And yet there is a a certain amount of number of hours in the day. And these senior faculty themselves are up against the same pressures as junior faculty. They're still, you know, they're feeling the crunch for research funding and, and on Epic and trying to chart their patient encounters and closing records and regulatory compliance, you know, uh, work modules and things. So they have those same pressures and yet they have these junior folks who are, you know, will you be my mentor, mentor me, mentor me. So I'm curious how, if you've thought about looking at this from the mentor's perspective and how you help, first of all, um, recognize that effort and also you mentioned you know equipping leaders how are how do you address the the capacity or the, the capability rather of mentors to make sure mentors are actually doing good mentoring yes yeah, a great question so and it's one of the things that in terms of the wellness that has motivated my involvement in that because I do feel that we have so burdened our faculty with regulations, whether they're coming from research or from the clinical enterprise, that the just the opportunity for collegial interactions is really gotten squeezed out of academics. And things like mentorship, you know, I think are under great uh, distress. Uh, what we do, so, you know, part of what we do is in conjunction with our uh, School of Graduate Studies in that you know, NIH and others are, you know, I think continually elevating the bar. They clearly, you know, have an interest in making sure that people are properly uh, prepared for the mentoring role. So, um, you know, we have several programs that are principally for the research uh, faculty about mentorship. Some of those are done in our CCTS, and some of them are available in our graduate school. For example, they have a certificate for leadership and mentorship. Mm -hmm. At the school level, we do list mentorship as a specific activity that is acknowledged and respected in terms of promotion and tenure. And so the way our promotion and tenure process works is to be in a tenure earning track, you have to show excellence in two areas in that and those can be of the three of teaching and research and service. And so mentorship is, you know, listed quite explicitly as a valued uh, thing that can be done. Um, I think, you know, in terms of a lot of what we do, and I think most faculty development, faculty affairs people would agree with this. We operate through, you know, persuasion and cajoling and that sort of thing. I think with our leaders, our more enlightened leaders, understand the value of it and is you know as i mentioned we do try to hold the chairs accountable for what are they doing i mean they they have the same you know kind of regulatory environment we're all living in so i think we're sensitive to that because we're research intensive i think it helps a little with this in that we it's just you can tell that the expectations around mentorship development are increasing. And while that is represent a burden, when you see someone in a distressed mentoring, a dysfunctional mentoring relationship, I tell you, it kind of gets you on board for saying we've got to get people prepared and we do have to monitor this circumstance. Mm-hmm. To me, this is the biggest thing about the mentoring team model is, and I would say to people is, look, unless you're this, this person's principal methodologic mentor, you know, then it's it's not going to be that time consuming. You know, if you're very senior, 
you know, you may be able to say to people, what is it you're seeking in a relationship? So I would encourage people to get a little bit more precise in, in saying, what is it exactly? You know, if you're wanting to come in my lab and I'm going to be helping you principally from your research, then to me, there's got to be mutuality in that, uh, in terms of, you know, and kind of watching how that relationship works, not being a scientist that, you know, you bring somebody on, whether it's an assistant faculty or even a postdoc, that there, you do have to embrace that there's a developmental journey that you're going on with people. What I tell the mentees is you need to take care of your mentor. If you have a good mentor, you have a very precious commodity, mm. and maybe today even more so than ever. And you need to, you know, help that person advance their work. You know, we're in a tough time. And, you know, a lot of the, I don't see it so much with the junior faculty, but with some of the postdocs, you know, you hear stories where they kind of go off the ranch and kind of want to do their own thing. I think some preparation of both of the parties in that circumstance to say, look, you know, if someone's agreed to be your mentor, you've just gotten a gift. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to treat the gift with respect. And, and that person doesn't need to be tracking you down. You know, right. you need to be setting up the meetings. And right. there's good literature that shows that when the mentee drives the relationship, those are the best relationships. And so I, I think even telling a mentor, just because you agree doesn't mean you've made a lifetime commitment to somebody. And if they're not responsive, then, mm-hmm. you know, it may be a time to say, look, you know, let's review expectations. I don't have time in life to be tracking you down, exactly. you know, and bugging you about deadlines and those sort of things. That's not the world we live in anymore, if it ever was. So, Yeah, agreed. We have a mentoring contract that we have mentees. Oh, we encourage nice, mentees yeah. and mentors to come and review uh-huh. that contract annually and renegotiate and talk about exactly what you said, expectations about who's setting the meeting, meeting agendas, follow-up, accountability, responsibility, and using time respectfully. So we're, we're very uh, attuned to that, too, so I totally agree. You know, yeah, you, let's go. I'll talk with you. Yeah, you mentioned something, uh, two things that I really wanted to dig a little deeper about that I was intrigued. You talked about the military model. You know, you said in academic right. medicine, we have a lot to learn from the military model of leadership and how in, in any branch of the service, once you reach a certain rank, uh, you're already being prepared for the next rank. And that's gotten me thinking. I mean, how how would you envision or how might we adapt that really um, thoughtful very almost linear well yeah there's a linear progression of title and rank in an environment where there aren't um, you don't just come to a certain point of years in service in academic medicine where you will go from lieutenant lieutenant colonel colonel etc right. etc and yeah. there's there's only one <laughs> Of each of those ranks, you know, in the military, right. you can anybody can be those ranks. Whereas in academic medicine, you can count on two hands sometimes the number of deans and assistant associate deans, and so we don't have that um, that capacity for flooding folks at different titles. So how how might that look for us? Do you have any thoughts? So you know, uh, the, the first thing I'll say is in my world it. It's flat. And so I really ascribe to the servant leader model. And what I tell everybody is that the sort of the sacred work in academic medicine is when the clinician provides a service to the patient, when a teacher, you know, facilitates learning for the student and when, you know, new discoveries are made or refined. And so 
the high, the the bigger the title to me, the lower the position. So mm-hmm. I'll just clarify that. I also believe that you know we need to have conversations with people that come into leadership roles to say you know some of the decision is like how close do you want to live to that action and so for some people they like I don't want to end up in the dean's office because I want to be you know really involved in those sort of things and I think that's fine and that we should encourage that you know I think the mistake that we make many times is we give people leadership roles um, or even just titles as really as an effort to, you know, retain them, that they're really gifted in one way or the other. And so we give them these things. And the problem is that they have followers, so they're impacting people. And I've seen plenty of examples in all the places I've been of, you know, dysfunctionality when when people aren't properly prepared for those roles. I think the, may, the way it might work, like I do a thing with the surgery residents through the American College of Surgeons every year, and, and I expose them to a couple of fundamental concepts in leadership. And a lot of these people are junior surgery residents, and so the, the big work there is convincing them that they are already leaders. And, you know, I tell them, I bet you if I were to go visit your place, you already have a reputation. Like if you're an intern, you probably already have a reputation among the students. Mm -hmm. And so just be aware you're impacting people, right? And so you've got to pay attention a little bit to at least some fundamentals of leadership. But I think everybody in their annual performance review, particularly when they start taking on, you know, leadership roles, we ought to be saying to them, you know, what is it you need now? But then what are you thinking? Where would you like this to lead? Do you do you imagine that you would want to go into, you know, in a role where it's more programmatic? Um, Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I like practicing surgery is that the change I affect as a surgeon is is profound, is individual, uh, is quite uh, intimate in many times. Uh, and what I do, I mean, people give their children to me literally to operate on. Uh, but it's also eminently measurable. I mean, I, I can tell this is going well and maybe this is not going so well. In the job that I do in organizational change, it requires an unusual amount of talking to get any change started uh, and takes a lot of effort to sustain it. It feels like a lot of it's outside of my control. If I have a department chair that's not convinced, you know, I get very much limited in what I can accomplish. And it's so diffuse that sometimes you can't tell, like, are we there yet? You know, have we finished? Um, and so... Um, I think what I would say to anyone who was, you know, in a starting thing that was interested in my roles is that you just have to learn to accept that, that it's going to take months and years to affect change. And if it gets into a culture change, maybe a decade. Uh, and so you just have to understand that. Yeah. So the, uh, the other thing I think we can all do to help is I very much believe that we should all have terms and term limits because mm-hmm. I do think that there are a limited number of these roles and that the quality of the work is improved if we all, you know, step down and step back into the faculty, not necessarily change institutions or retire, but we return to the faculty. I really think that's a lot of uh, good things that come out of that model. I love that that diversity, including new generations and newer ways of thinking and just freshening up um, perspective and changing the lens through which you you look at things. I I really like what you said about, you know, leadership and fundamental concepts and how you really try to 
imbue in your 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 uh, surgeons this idea that you're already a, lit- a leader, and we do that as well with our junior faculty members in our one of our early junior leadership programs is we remind them that, you know, think back when you were a student or a postdoc or a resident or fellow and you looked up to assistant professors, you know, someone as a professor, right. you're that person. You already are a leader to your patients and the folks in your lab and staff and colleagues and other trainees who are coming up. People, as Luann Thorndike always says, you know, as a leader, people are taking your temperature all day long. They're watching you. They're looking yeah. you. So behave as if you are a leader because, in fact, you are. And I was right. talking to a, a woman today who was interviewing for a position with us at Hopkins, and we were talking about leadership programs. And she said, you know, it's not necessarily that when I went through that leadership program that I was, you know, hell-bent on being the next dean or even the, the chairman of my department. She said, I knew pretty quickly that I didn't want that. But what that leadership program did equip me with was this uh, courage to explore other leadership positions. And through her gaining some skills and experiencing networking, she really um, got the confidence to go apply for this U that only two were awarded in the country. And it was like eight institutions, this big U, U grant that was multi, multi millions that she said she never would have um, never would even thought of, she's, she's a, from a smaller university and, and she's already at the top of the pack with a couple R01s and the institution had never before competed for a U grant and she got it and, and she completely credited that to the experience of being a leader in a leadership program where, you know, as we, you know, we talk about it, it's not necessarily, I love that you said it's, you know, the higher, the, the bigger the title, the lower the position that, we're not training people necessarily to be the next insert big title, but to embed this sense of servant leadership, as you said, how can I serve? And that can be through my science and through my, my education and from growing my practice and uh, being a clinician of excellence. So broadening that scope, I think is, is those of us who do this understand the value that sometimes it's hard to measure and to market or Talk about an RO, uh, return on investment on that kind of uh, an experience. Yeah, I th- you know, I think that's, I agree with all that. I think that is one of the advantages is that we, you know, we're diversifying the portfolio of what things can do. So, you know, like we're starting these, uh, <clears throat> or expanding our kind of clinical pathways, which I see sort of as cross-cutting to the departments. And I think that's quite healthy um, in terms of, I just think we have a lot of people that have capacity around. Um, and I think some, in some cases, just exposure to the idea of, you know, leadership is to me a lot of about influencing people in positive directions. And so it's a pretty broad construct. Hmm. Um, but I think that's why some of these things, and that's why I like to start with a resonance is exposing to them that the ideas, you know, that there are definitely leaders that have a positive impact on their uh, follower group and then there are styles that don't. Uh, in some sophistication, you know, I'm a big believer in situational leadership. And so in a crisis, one type, type of leadership is quite effective, but, you know, it doesn't work so well. I tell the surgeons, you know, what we might have to do in a crisis in the operating room is probably best, not the best approach in Starbucks, you know, if the line's long. So having some sophistication about your group and your task and your context, I think is a, is a really healthy, you know, way to look at it. So. 
one of the things that we do that I is good for my soul and for people that are in the faculty affairs role is every year we do a, a Dean's Excellence Award and we give awards in the in the uh, kind of three durable missional areas of service, teaching, and research. But we also give one in enhancing diversity and also in mentorship and. The reason they're lovely is is that you get these just unbelievable people that are doing just amazing things, and they're just all so happy to be at UEB, and you know they they reflect you know this great humility and and uh, great uh, respect for their collaborators, and it's just you know these aren't the people that we get to know sometimes, and so it's just a reminder that that's the great majority of the faculty are out doing amazing things, uh, and they just. You know, we we just aren't aware of them, uh, so it's kind of good for your soul, um, if for nothing else. So I love the yeah, the Dean's Excellence Awards. I love that because it it not only honors and recognizes the, the servants around us who are dedicated and passionate and who just quietly sometimes go go about their business and don't want or seek the attention, but it also you know builds the culture and raises a profile uh, and tells the community this is something we value so these kinds of awards when i first got into faculty development i thought oh my goodness this is you know we don't have time for this and nobody wants a luncheon nobody wants a banquet nobody wants a happy hour where awards are given out and i I was building that you know that uh, that assumption on the fact that we'd have so many other fill-in-the-blank kinds of activities and seminars and workshops and and trying to have networking events that were poorly attended. Oh, I'm thinking of those um oh those um, you know minute like matchmaking speed oh, mentoring yeah, yeah. sessions and you know yeah. people kind of go and like it's like going to a new restaurant. There's a big rush and then they die off. And I always thought no one's going to come to this. Oh my gosh, the first time we <laughs> yeah. had an award ceremony, yeah. it was standing yeah. room only. The yeah. food was wiped out. I thought, are you kidding me? And it, it really gave a, a message to me that, you know, people, people care about people want to be, to celebrate the, the efforts that they make, the, the things that go above and beyond. And they really appreciated the fact that we were noticing it, that people were, yeah, right. you know, why notice you? People, people don't necessarily call you out, but they're, um, we do notice the good work you do with mentoring. We do notice the work you do with diversity. And, and that really kind of stunned me as a, as a off the chart T thinker on the Myers Briggs. I thought, Oh, I guess this, this feeling stuff does matter. It really raises the profile of what yeah. the institution values and, I, I think those are very important. I love that you do that. I think the the word that's critical in there is notice. And so one of the things that I do is whenever we see announcements from the university newsletter or from the School of Medicine newsletter where faculty have, you know, won a national award or wherever, I always email those people and just said, hey, just to note, to say congratulations. And yeah. It was interesting because I had a fairly junior faculty member wrote back and said, wow, this is, you know, I've never gotten a letter from a note from the dean's office. And you're like, wow, you know, we're just, we're just knuckleheads like everybody else. And yet that that idea is, right. And so this idea of noticing, you know, that I think that goes a long way actually to preserve some some civility in what we're doing is to, even when I talk with people that are contemplating filing a grievance or otherwise distressed, sometimes just 
in you know Sandy Frazier in my office does this as well. Just letting them talk it through, yeah. then they just feel like okay, you know, somebody cared enough to let me tell my whole story without interrupting me, or you know, and and to me that is just a big thing that people can do. Providing a space, yeah. There, there's a woman I who I I, I followed um, up after she passed away at Hopkins, Lisa Heiser, and people still talk about her as just she's an angel on earth and how she used to write yeah. handwritten notes and cards to everyone and. And I thought I could never fill her shoes, and I'm I'm not a a note writer, card writer. I mean, I'm you know I would give my husband cards right from the the drugstore from CVS in the bag, or we'd go to a, I'd say it's your birthday, let's stop and run into Walgreens. Here's a pick out a card I would have given you. So I'm not, I have I have to really have to work hard at the feeling part. But she she there are so all these lovely stories of what a wonderful person she was, and I thought I just can't do that. So, but what I do do is shoot quick emails. Like you said, I, I, yeah. I um, have subscribed to all the different departments' newsletters, and many of them have newsletters and blogs and weekly updates. And so I, I really religiously scroll through all of them, and any of the faculty members who have been through our leadership programs and, and seminars and workshops and coaching sessions and people with whom I've built a relationship, I always – you know, obnoxiously reply with a huge font, congratulations, woohoo, awesome, great job. <laughs> and I'm telling you, within yeah. like T minus 10 seconds, I get a reply going, thanks, Kim. And I yeah, thought, oh my yeah. gosh, you know, this whole thing about people have so many emails and they don't reply and they don't have time. But you send someone a congratulations, you know, you're a rock star, you're knocking out of the park. They appreciate that you're picking them out of the crowd and like you said, I see you. I notice you. You're you're doing right. great work. It's tough, and you're doing it. So they they seem to like it, and it's just a simple ten second, you know, yep. email reply. No, that's right. I I completely agree. What else would you have? Any interesting stories or something um, else you'd like to talk with us about today? I just, you know, it's been interesting for me, you know, as I told you in my story, I came in, you know, thinking I would do faculty development. And I, you know, I do think that it's, it's interesting when I first started going to the GFA meetings that it was encouraging that the, the people there are just, you know, good people. And the way I describe it is uh, one of the books I use to talk about for leaders is called uh, Reframing Organizations by Bowman and Deal. And it talks about looking at organization across four frames. And one of them is what they call the human resource frame. But I, it's like, how do we treat people? And so I call it the, the people frame. Uh, and so I think what I have found among, you know, the people that are active there is that, you know, people really do care about people that are in the organization. You know, they have different areas of interest or whatever. But I think that's, the fundamental is that in these roles, you just have to be advocating for, you know, for people. And I always say instead of chief wellness officer, the better title would be the chief of we should be more strategic about how we treat people, officer, because that's a lot of where the burnout is coming from is we've allowed through a variety of mechanisms the the burden associated with regulation uh, and those sort of things to have really squeezed out a lot of you know, what is good about academics. And part of my passion for this role is, to me, it's been a wonderful life. To be an academic physician has been, you know, 
unbelievable. I've gotten to go all over the country and to places all over the world and, you know, share little things that I've learned. And, you know, what a fabulous experience that I would wish for everybody. And so I'm committed to trying to get us rebalanced back where people have time to do those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for UAB, we have physicians here that are offering services that are otherwise not available in a state, you know, that has its own set of struggles. And so, you know, I think we have to celebrate kind of the totality of what we do uh, in academic medicine. So now I do sometimes say that, you know, I love people, but on some days it's kind of more of an abstract kind of love. Uh, <laughs> so I do think that self-care is important in these roles because you do absorb a lot of, you know, yes. distress yes. that people are feeling. And I think you have to you know, understand the limits of what you can and cannot do and uh, that it's important as you kind of empathize with people that you have your own support, you know, system to to help people. And that's what I find, you know, about the meetings is when we come together, you sort of, you get some ideas, but mostly it's just, you know, having that time together and kind of appreciating what we're all trying to do in terms of making sure people are properly treated. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a lovely journey. Well, thank you, David. We've been listening to David A. Rogers, Senior Associate Dean in Alabama, pediatric surgeon, servant leader, chief people person, married to an incredibly brilliant physician scientist. Thank you, David. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.